Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 14. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. <laughs> slide it away. <laughs> <laughs> It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how truth long we You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We're starting out this session with the prologue and first chapter of a fun and beautifully written novel by Christine McCord titled Outrunning Josephine Finch. I should warn you, because I'm reading from a computer for this one and not a book, you'll hear the clicks, not the pages turning. Prologue, Jenny, September 1954. Ellington, Georgia. Jenny popped the last orange slice in her mouth and smashed it with her tongue, relishing the tart juice as she listened to Emmy hum. He walks with me. If Daddy heard it, he'd tell her to shut it up. She wiped at the beads of sweat on her upper lip and studied her pale legs under the sparse overhang of the only tree they owned, a scrawny Bradford pear. It made a sorry excuse for a patch of shade. She traced her fingers around the leafy shadows on her legs, thinking maybe the time had come to stop calling her mother Emmy. It made her feel like a baby every time she heard grown-ups laugh at the story about how Jenny mixed up Emmy's real name, Emily, with Mommy. The kids at school sometimes asked, too, and a few even made fun of her for it. Turning six years old meant she needed to start thinking more about manners like this. Goosebumps prickled over her arms and legs as she continued working her finger around the shadows on her kneecap. Something felt off. She shifted uneasily and listened as she let her eyes graze over the growing circle of shade. A strange, breathy whisper moved around her from every direction. It grew louder and louder until finally it sounded like the snap of fabric whipped by wind. She looked toward the clothesline where Emmy worked, expecting to see her own stained muslin sheets billowing about in the breeze, or maybe Emmy and Daddy's new percale set. Instead, she saw a perfectly spaced row of undergarments and stockings. They hung empty and breezeless like tiny sideways flags paying tribute to the grass. In fact, the very air around her seemed suspended as though time had stopped while she wasn't looking. Jenny turned her eyes to Emmy and her breath caught. She forgot about all sounds and sensations. Emmy's hair had mostly escaped her hairpins. It now framed her face with curly wisps of rich ebony. Combined with her brown eyes, the contrast made her fair skin gleam like wedding china. Emmy held her head high, tilted it up toward the sky, and wore a smile larger than Jenny had ever seen on her face before. Suddenly, it didn't matter anymore that Daddy would be home later. Emmy's beautiful smile chased away everything that ever made Jenny sad. She followed Emmy's gaze upward. Something dark floated in the sky, full of holes where sunlight glittered through like diamonds strewn about a tapestry. Her mind struggled to catch up to her eyes in that odd way of feeling empty-headed and lost all at the same time. Thought suddenly broke the service, and like an optical illusion, everything fell into a sudden and proper order. She giggled with amazement at the swarm of blue and black butterflies. Thousands upon thousands of them moved together like a living carpet. Jenny, look, they're angels, Emmy called to her. 
Maybe they really were angels, blue-winged creatures from heaven. Time stayed slow, fat and lazy, as they fluttered overhead, and the slightest feather of a breeze tickled across her face. For that moment, nothing in this world mattered, more than the joy on Emmy's face and the peace in Jenny's heart. She vowed to remember it forever. Chapter 1. Miranda. June 21, 1996. St. Luke's Hospital, Boise, Idaho. I tried to control my breathing the way I practiced. The tightening started in my back, gradually expanding around my sides and then into my belly. Inhaling deeply, I let out my breath as slow as I could and squeezed my husband's hand. Hans looked pale as his eyes darted around the room. There goes another one, my mama Jenny whispered. You gotta use the big ones. Emmy drifted closer to me. Write it out. Push with it. Emmy, she knows what to do. Give her some space, Mama snapped. I drew my legs up and felt them press uncomfortably in the sides of my mountainous stomach. All right, Dad, you need to help her support her legs. The uh, delivery nurse sounded irritated as she tried to help by bracing my feet. The strength of the contraction clamped down on me, surprising me with its force. I couldn't escape. They would get worse, and no matter how bad it hurt, I had no way out. Nothing I could do but surrender to the ripping apart of my body. Hans still didn't hold my legs. I tried to think of the baby. I'll see her any minute. The room around me blurred, time dilated like the insides of my body, suspended in a paradoxical sea of minutes that passed with lightning speed between each never-ending wave of pain. It overtook me. I would drown. A series of beeps chirped near my head. Hans's pager. He pulled his hand from mine. I'll be right back. The pain pinned me to the bed. My voice came out in a growl. What do you mean, right back? You can't leave. But he stepped backward and turned away. I closed my eyes against him. On the opposite side of the bed, my mama's hands supported the weight of my right leg. A sound emitted from me, low and deep like an animal. I lost control of my breathing. Push, someone reminded me. Another hand moved to my left leg, supporting the side where Hans was supposed to be. I opened my eyes and saw my grandmother. From my head to my core, I pushed with everything I could summon. What if she comes out before he gets back? He won't be here. He won't even be here. I wanted to scream out those words, put everything on hold. This couldn't be happening, but the contraction bore down on me harder. I wouldn't defy it. It overcame me, and I pushed. There she is, Mandy. I see her. Mama's voice. Where in God's name did he go? Emmy glanced back at the door. Emmy, not now, Mama hissed. The band loosened, and I let my hair fall back against the sweat-soaked pillow. Emmy brushed a slick strand of hair away from my eyes. If I could wait just long enough, Hans would return in time. Another contraction began. It bore down on me stronger than the last. My pelvis exploded in ripping heat. It couldn't get worse. It couldn't hurt more. This is it, and if it's not, I'll die. I swear I'll die. I can't. Shush now, girl. You can. You will. It's almost done. My grandmother's voice came close to my ear as she and Mama braced me for the next wave of my labor. They gave me strength. I imagined myself as a ball of fire burning in my core. I gave in to the pain. I ceased to be Miranda. Hans didn't exist. I knew only the baby I labored to bring to life. I couldn't bear the thought of another contraction. This one would be my last if it killed me. She's coming, Mandy. You're almost there. Push. And I did. I pushed my soul clear out of my body and into the atmosphere. I pushed until I felt nothing but the universe existing in silence. I would die for her. I burned like a star in the sky. There came the tiniest of sounds an infant's gasp, and then a cry, a dainty, defiant voice, protested the assault of birth and life. Mama squealed beside me. Emmy leaned over, 
She looks like me, Mandy. Look at that. She chuckled. Oh, well, good Lord, Emmy. Can't you see she's got my hair? Satisfaction purred in Mama's voice. I lifted my head to see just as they placed her on my chest. Who wants to cut the cord, someone asked. Emmy, you go ahead. Mama turned away. Figures, but Emmy sounded pleased. Mama leaned in close to the baby and whispered in a soft voice. Look at you, little Anne Not long from heaven. Not long at all. What was it like there? In the moments after Annelie's birth, I waited for my husband to return. I held my new baby enchanted and anxious for her father to see her. Finally, someone swallowed her and placed her in her bed. I drifted in and out of sleep. Distantly, as though I dreamed, I became aware of Emmy leaving to look for Hans. She would go get him, give him a piece of her mind. That's good, Emmy. Just bring him back. I didn't know how much time had passed. Finally, I heard my mama and grandmother talking just outside the door. I listened, trying to make out their words out their words through the fuzzy exhaustion that clouded my thinking. When I opened my eyes, I could just barely see through the door to where they stood in the hall. He's got another wife, a rich one. She came to get him, gave him an ultimatum. He left with her, Jenny, and he ain't coming back, Emmy whispered. This isn't happening, not to Mandy. I won't let it. Jenny, it's already happened. It can't. He's married to Mandy. How can he be married to someone else? Isn't that illegal? In profile, I saw the defiance in Mama's face. I don't know how, but he did it. Oh, I wanted better for her. Why couldn't she have better than this? You wanted better, don't you think I did too? She's my daughter. You always make it about you. Oh, quit being so territorial. Her husband just left her. Now she's got a child to raise, and one of us is going to have to tell her. What's the matter with his family? Why don't things ever go the way they should? Grandma Finch, that's why. Emmy's expression darkened. Just hush up about her. She's dead, and I don't want to hear any talk about curses. If you don't lower your voice, you'll... Now look what you did. You woke her up. They turned to look at me and tried to smile, both of them still standing just outside the door. I had heard enough to know two things. My marriage never really existed, meaning my husband wasn't mine, and it had all come to light on my first day of motherhood. I failed my new baby before she even took her first breath. Her future and our family dissipated like wisps of smoke, as I pulled the sheet up tighter around me. A primal sob escaped my throat. It split through me with such force it rivaled rivaled my labor. Grief racked my exhausted body with spasms of agony. My mother and my grandmother surrounded me. Arms held me. Voices soothed. Everything's going to be okay, baby. It's all right. They're there now. We've got you. Their voices wove together, pulsing in my ears, my mind, and my heart, until finally, behind those soft murmurs, my baby began to cry. Here's a short story by Danny Clark called The Picture. For as long as he could remember, the stern-looking, gray-haired old man with the scornful eyes had stared down at him from above the mantle of the fireplace with a menacing and reproving look. As a child... He'd ventured into the mahogany-paneled room lined with books and heavy wooden furniture, only to feel the eyes following him like a savage animal waiting for opportunity to pounce. The picture was encompassed in a heavy, ornate frame that had withstood the rigors of several generations, measuring nearly four by six feet, making its subject nearly life-sized. The old Grand mansion, resplendent in its day, still stood resolute on the hill at the end of the long driveway, with an imposing cold presence emanating from its many heavily draped windows. Never, or nearly never, had anyone ever seen light escape from within, 
that may have signaled that it was inhabited. In early days, a buggy or an occasional horse-drawn surrey may have evidenced the presence of a visitor. In a more modern day, horseless carriages of all sorts and vintages disgorged their passengers before pulling into the rear and into enclosed parking garages. But now Nathan Jacobson led a very solitary and uneventful life following the death of his parents and the failure of his single attempt at marriage. Claire, his bride of just a few weeks, who had died, mysteriously from causes unknown, but widely speculated among the townsfolk, was a local woman whom he had met at boarding school. She had been just 19, and he 21, when the spark had lit the fire that burned so brightly within them, but for such a short time. Unknown, of course, was if she had been attracted to the man or his money, possibly both. She had been an orphan herself, with little to offer beyond her sparkling smile, soft melodic voice, and twinkling eyes which were full of life. He, on the other hand, had been born into a large family, with its lineage tracing back to the founding fathers and beyond. Aristocracy was the name they preferred. Bluebuds they were called by the less privileged. Possibly sometime before crossing the ocean and beginning their lives in America, they had indeed been of noble birth. But those stories had been lost as each subsequent generation produced fewer and fewer offspring until there was no one to carry on the family name. He was the last of the line able to perpetrate both the bloodline and name. And now he had grown old and remained without prospects for children. Bitter, alone, and disillusioned, he was seldom seen and never outside the walls of his home. Only those bringing necessary food and consumables, the housekeeper and manservant, now had access to the interior of the mansion. He was but 42, but would have easily passed for 70 with unkempt, straggly hair, uh, long gray hair and eyebrows, hawk-like patrician nose, and deep-set piercing eyes, uh, much like those of his great-great-grandfather, whose portrait was previously mentioned. Indeed, a newcomer may have likely judged the picture as Nathan's own. Grayson, Nathan called to his servant as he peered out between the heavy drapes on one of many windows overlooking the front courtyard. I think I just saw movement in the shrubbery along the front fence. The tall, stoop-shouldered man in a worn uniform nodded and joined him at the glass. Indeed, sir, he agreed. There seems to be two or three children hiding among the bushes. I'll go down and run them off. No, bring them to me, Nathan replied. I want to hear their explanation before I call the authorities. As you wish, Grayson answered as he left the second-story room. Nathan continued to watch as Grayson hurriedly crossed the expansive yard from the circular driveway and confronted the three children. Two walked ahead toward the house, while the third was helped along by the butler, who had a firm grip on the back of his worn jacket. The young man tried frantically to break his hold, but without success. Nathan made a production of allowing them to stand for several minutes in the entry, while he descended the grand, looping stairway toward them. The two smaller boys stood looking down at their tattered jeans and their untied shoes, while the third, the one whom Grayson had provided special incentive to come along, stood with his head up defiantly, silently watching Nathan's approach. "'What have we here?' Nathan asked the room, not expecting a response. "'Trespassers, to be sure,' he answered his own question. Grayson said nothing. "'Thieves and vandals up to no good, I suspect,' he added. The towhead with the attitude spoke. 
That is not true. We are neither thieves nor vandals. We are children without homes looking for protection from the cold and those who would harm us. You'll address me as sir, or you'll hold your tongue, Nathan declared in a loud voice. Tell us, who are those whom you say are looking to harm you? The shortest of them seemed to find a voice and declared, The older ones and the man in black, sir. At most, the lad looked to be no more than six and possibly even younger, but he seemed to have a maturity far beyond his years. The boy standing beside him nodded in agreement, but added nothing. The older ones, you mean the older homeless children like yourselves? Nate questioned. And who is this man in black to whom you refer? Again, the towhead spoke. There are gangs of runaways and orphans who live in the streets, stealing from each other and preying on the young and innocent. They work for the man in black and do whatever he tells them. Nathan had adopted a more reasoned look. Grayson, please escort our visitors into the kitchen, he said, and offer them something to eat, if you would. Grayson must have had a strange look on his face. He had never been asked to do anything in all his years of service. He'd never heard a please or thank you. Yes, certainly, sir, he answered. Come along, lads, and let me see what we have to offer you. Thomas Paul Hardy. Tom, to his few friends, was by his own count eleven when he ran away from his abusive, abusive stepfather following his mother's death. Shirley, like her current husband, had become a druggie and a thief, doing anything necessary to feed the animal that eventually devoured her. He'd been on the street only a few weeks when the gangs tried to recruit him, promising the security of numbers and the protection of their godfather, the man in black, as they called him. Tremaine Washington Blackstone, known as Blackie by his peers, was in his early 20s and already well-connected in nearly all of the unsavory criminal activities of the small town. He pimped, dealt drugs, bought and sold stolen merchandise, and ruled with an iron hand. When Tom refused his generous offer, the gang was alerted to capture and bring him to Blackie for punishment and re-education. Having been forced by circumstance from a young age to become self-sufficient, Tom, now 12, was resourceful and crafty and had yet to be captured. He also had a compassionate side which drew him to those in need, thus the two younger boys he'd chosen to hide and protect. Their short-term association had been summarily interrupted when Nathan's sharp eyes had spied them hiding in his hedgerow and Grayson had been dispatched to capture them. The boys were hungry and ate with great relish what leftovers Grayson could conjure up, but remained leery of what their captor's real intent may be. Grayson, do we have anything more suitable for these lads to wear? Nathan asked. No, sir, Grayson replied. Nothing small enough for children. I could check with my missus and ask if we have anything at home. Would it suit you to spend the afternoon shopping? He asked his servant. I'll provide the funds, of course, and keep you on salary. Grayson nodded and smiled. As you wish, sir, he replied, wondering about the change in his employer. Would you ask Mrs. Fox to come in before you leave? Nate asked. I have a request of her also. Kathleen Fox, now nearly 70 years old, had been in the family's employ for three generations, first as a nanny and later as a housekeeper after Nathan had grown. She came and went as she pleased, with little direction from Nathan, who allowed her, for the most part, to make any necessary decisions concerning the day-to-day -day operation of the mansion. She ordered and paid for foodstuffs, handled the bills and payroll for her and Grayson, and only consulted Nathan when she felt the need for his approval. In fact, she was the manager of the house. 
"'Sir,' the gray-haired, portly woman said as she entered the kitchen, where the children remained eating. Nate smiled at her as one would have their own mother, and then answered, "'Mrs. Fox, we have guests. May I ask that you uh, may draw them a hot tub and show them where the necessary items for personal hygiene are kept?' The old woman gave the three a critical once-over, then smiled a grandmotherly smile, and answered, "'I'd be pleased to, Master Nathan.' They certainly are in need of such. Thank you, he replied. Grayson has gone to purchase suitable clean clothing. Do we have adequate bedding? She smiled and answered, Certainly, sir. We have twelve beds already made up and several more which are not currently serviceable, but can be made up if necessary. Looking at the three children, a shadow of a smile crossed Nate's face, replacing the stern look it had grown to know. Something inside the man seemed to be awakening and taking on a life of its own. Boys, he said, addressing the three, if it pleases you, I'd like to offer the accommodations of the manor to you, with only a single request, that you respect its furnishings, Mr. Grayson and Mrs. Fox, and abide by their rules. Will you do that? The two younger boys nodded eagerly, both with full mouths and unable to answer. Tom, however, raised his eyes and asked, What's the catch? What do you expect us to do for you? So cynical for one so young, Nathan observed, smiling. You must have been betrayed by those that you trusted. I suspect you to treat us the way you are treated, nothing more, nothing less. Thomas said nothing more, but did not break off eye contract, uh, contact until Nathan lowered his eyes. An hour later, and their meal gone, they were shown up the stairway to the second floor bath. Rub-a-dub-dub, three boys in a tub, Kathleen thought to herself, smiling as she laid three fluffy towels on the stand nearby and cautioned the boys about splashing water on the floor. She had great-grandchildren their ages and greatly missed their once-frequent visits, visits to her home. Possibly these three ruffians may come to fill the hole in her heart if they stayed on. Nearly two hours had passed when Grayson pulled his old car into the driveway and began unloading bags and packages into the foyer. To his great surprise, Nathan opened the door for him, then went to the car and picked up an armload of packages before joining him in the house. They are upstairs in the bath, Nate said, anticipating Grayson's unasked question. It is my hope that we may provide them food and shelter. Grayson marveled as his employer followed him up the stairs, arms laden with new clothing, wondering at the change apparent. Underwear, T-shirts, socks, jeans, and jackets for each were taken from their packaging with a second set put aside for another day. Grayson had done well to guess their sizes, but had forgotten pajamas, slippers, and shoes. It felt both and looked like Christmas as the three squealed and laughed while the two men watched silently from the doorway. On the morrow, Nate whispered, we'll go into town and fit them for shoes. We? Grayson questioned. Will you be coming along, sir? I think I will. I believe it is the proper time to begin handling some of my own affairs, Nathan answered. Dear Mrs. Fox has raised me from a child. It is past time for her to take a well-earned rest. The old butler smiled, but did not answer. He couldn't wait to see how Kathleen handled it. Pleased, but still somewhat skeptical, Thomas let things progress while keeping a close watch on them. He cautioned the two younger boys to stay alert and let them know if they suspected any skullduggery. He half expected that an attempt would be made to turn him over to the county authorities or even possibly the man in black if the price was right. 
He couldn't, however, figure out why the old man had ponied up money to buy them new clothes if he intended to do them harm. Maybe he expected them to be sold as sex slaves that he had heard rumors about. His head was full of possibilities, which pointed to the possibility that this stranger had a motive for his generosity. After three days, Nathan did contact the authorities and invited them to his house for a discussion. The three boys did not show themselves and stayed in hiding until the delegation left. Nearly a week went by, uneventfully, while the children began to feel comfortable in their new surroundings and began to explore the vast estate. Neither Nathan nor Grayson interfered or even made it obvious that they had noticed. Three sedans pulled up in the circle driveway and parked as nearly a dozen men and women disembarked and made their way to the house. Grayson greeted them and seated them in the dining room around a large mahogany table. Mrs. Fox offered coffee, tea, and a variety of freshly baked pastries to the guests as they were allowed to become comfortable. Nathan entered after several minutes with a broad smile and several well-received compliments to the women in attendance. Thank you all for coming. Please do enjoy Mrs. Fox's fresh pastries and partake of the hot beverages as you desire. Earlier, I made my case to some of you for the need of a sanctuary for the young in our community. I expect that you have had time to consider my proposal and have returned with questions, Nathan said pleasantly before taking his seat at the head of the table. The mayor stood. Mr. Jacobson, your kind offer has been the subject of many discussions among both the city and county leaders, and including several from the clergy. We, of course, are overwhelmed by the magnitude of your generosity, and I may add that a few remain skeptical, fearing that there may be an ulterior motive. Of the county commissioners, uh, one of the county commissioners rose from his seat before Nate had a chance to reply. Sir, please do accept our apologies in advance for the skepticism that your mayor has voiced, but try and understand that it is quite unusual that one would offer such a gift without requiring something in return. This time, Nathan allowed the room to quiet and made certain that no one wished to speak before he rose. Ladies and gentlemen, your concerns are duly noted, and I would have been disappointed if you had not felt the need to protect your citizenry from some plot to indebt or otherwise misuse their trust. I can assure you that I, too, have given this enterprise considerable thought, and I, too, have questions and misgivings, but they are not about my offer to provide shelter and housing for indigent children. They are about my personal ability to do so. As respects the financial dimension that would affect your taxpayers, I offer a completely funded perpetual trust to be overseen and managed by competent professionals. My reward, if you choose to be crass, has already been received. Those here representing the clergy and those with Christian values already understand. It is my hope that, among others, you will someday come to the same understanding. A tall man, clothed in black with a white collar, sitting at the far end of the table, smiled and nodded without speaking. Nathan had remained on his feet and looked intently around the table and into the eyes of each guest. Mrs. Fox was quietly making her way around the table, filling and refilling their cups. Grayson followed a step behind her with a serving tray filled with pastries. As I was taught so many years ago in Sunday school, my debt has been paid in full by the sacrifice on someone willing to give whatever was necessary that I may live, Nathan added. What I may require is trained professionals from the community, able and willing to provide the education and training I lack concerning the raising of children. This will not only be their home, but the place where they may get education and love. This time when Nathan was seated, the pastor rose and began to clap. 
At first, some hesitated, but within seconds all had risen and were joining in the applause, smiling and nodding their heads in approval. When the applause had run its course and the group researched, uh, reseated themselves, the mayor remained standing. Sir, I think I speak for the majority here. We applaud not only your generosity, but also your foresight and altruistic motives, and am pleased to accept your offer. Nathan hesitated, then stood. I'll ask my attorneys to prepare the necessary documents for your approval and inspection, and then proceed to implement our agreement. Now, if you'll indulge me for another moment, I'd like to introduce my guests and friends to this body. Of course, Mrs. Fox and Grayson had explained in minute detail the purpose of the meeting to the boys before helping them groom themselves and dress appropriately. Grayson led them into the room and introduced them as he would have introduced royalty. All three stood uncomfortably eyeing uh, eyeing their new shoes. Nathan arose, walked to them, wrapped his arms around them, and said, These are are my sons, of whom I am well pleased. Thomas, Robert, and James were the first three, but many, many more followed over the successive years. The man who had never had progeny of his own raised and cared for hundreds of children in the mansion, which was later known throughout the entire state as Jacob's Son's Home for Children, upon his death. Nathan left a well-funded trust and a vast network of charities, all committed to providing for the needs of the young and indigent. Oh, and the picture? It was replaced by another, with Nathan standing behind the three boys, and flanked by Grayson, his wife, and Mrs. Fox. Sandra Kopp's first novel in her Dark Lords of Epthelion fantasy series is titled Warrior Queen of Hall Ranfell and is action-packed from the get-go. Prologue. October. The full moon ascended slowly over the mystic mountains to gaze serenely upon the deep forests of Baron Fell. Its orange beams lighted the four towers of Castle Riadoc, crouched like a beast upon its granite perch. Rising higher, it hovered a moment to peep through the window of one tower, spilling eerie light across the stone floor and illuminating the circle painted in the very middle of the room. A tall figure in a stiff-colored robe stood in the center of the circle, coolly regarding the figure kneeling at his feet. A curious blue mist hovered above his left shoulder. His right hand held an ebony staff entwined with the likenesses of four hooded serpents, each facing a different direction. Their bared fangs and blood-red eyes glinted in the pale light. Lucius Mordarius, you deem yourself worthy to be called a prince of Aphelion after the order of Riadoc? The deep voice sounded calm, almost soothing. The kneeling figure did not look up. I do, my lord. You think yourself able to do what I require of you, to obey my every command without question? The voice rose, its residence filling the chamber. Do you swear allegiance to your lord? An allegiance broken upon pain of death? I am able, my lord. I do swear allegiance on pain of death. Take care, apprentice. Your uncle possesses great integrity, commanding reverence and respect throughout Thalion. He raised you as his own son. Might his influence cloud your judgment? Perhaps turn you against us? Making you a traitor to the cause? Mordarius' shoulders rose and fell as he sucked in a breath and blew it out again. Through gritted teeth, he growled, My dear uncle, that great man of God, forced his revolting doctrine down my throat until I vomited it back at him in disgust. His influence drove me to embrace the cause. Indeed, 
I have already amassed an army. They have renounced the king and pledged loyalty to me. All is ready. In but a single night I could give you Valhalia. Mordarius began to look up, but a swiftly descending snake's head thumped him back into submission. My lord Riodoc, I swear upon my very life that I shall not betray the cause. I swear it. You are ambitious and greedy. I would not usurp your throne, great one. I do not covet that. He heard Riodoc sigh, felt his steel-blue eyes boring through the top of his head like flaming swords. Mordarius's heart pounded and he struggled to keep his breathing even. His knees pressed hard to the stone floor, throbbed mercilessly. He longed to shift to a more comfortable position, but dared not move. Despite the coldness of the room, beads of perspiration broke out on his forehead. The unbearable silence seemed to last an eternity. Finally, Riodoc clicked his tongue. <clears throat> I hold you to your oath, Lucius Mordarius. Should you betray me, I will require your life. I do not install you in my order, however. You have yet to prove yourself truly worthy. Have I not already, my lord? Again the snake's head descended. A razor-sharp fang grazed Mordarius's left ear. Inwardly he cursed, but he did not flinch. Riodoc stood silent, his staff poised above Mordarius's head. I give you power, Lucius Mordarius, but not in full measure. My lord, go. Riodoc disappeared in a blinding blue flash. A swirling, howling wind arose, filling the chamber and pulling Mordarius off the floor. The hapless warlock cried out as the vortex carried him through the window and deposited, deposited him well beyond the moat. For a moment he lay stunned, staring up at the indifferent moon. You speak of betrayal, Riodoc, he rasped. Have I, you not betrayed me? I, who have served, he choked. Searing pain raced from his brain to the ends of his toes. Several agonizing minutes later, his breath returned. Groaning, he rolled to one side and crawled to his feet. He would return from whence he came, to Valhalia, the glittering gem of Athelion, and home of his uncle, prelate Jonah Havelseth. Valhalia would soon be his, and Riodoc would see what his uncle's influence had wrought. Chapter 1. The Fall of Atwal. Early the following April. Twilight had fallen when prelate Jonah Havaseth strode past the Atwal marketplace toward home. A tall man with a high forehead, unlined face, and thinning white hair, he bore a quiet dignity and exuded both authority and kindness. His deep wisdom and diplomatic skills had served him well in life, affording him not only the post of prelate, but a commission as a counselor to King Nicholas himself. The cool air smelled of fried fish and scones, garlic and vinegar. Throngs of squealing children raced among the booths, pushing their way through the milling crowd. A torrent of defamatory taunts met a glassware vendors shouted warning. A nearby purveyor of sweetmeats berated the parents of the child caught with his hand in her basket while they pretended not to notice. Jonah's stomach rumbled. A piece of fried fish would have tasted delicious, but his favorite meal of slow-cooked beef awaited him at home. Whistling, he quickened his pace and soon reached the broad avenue leading to his home. The lamplighters had begun their work. By nightfall, the city would rival the starlit sky with a brilliant carpet tucked amid the rolling terrain. Atwal, chief city of Valhalia, was a beautiful and thriving metropolis of some 80,000 people, made wealthy by the brisk industrial agricultural lumber and livestock trades. Despite its seamier elements, the city possessed more of what was right than what was wrong, at least in Jonah's mind. The wide boulevard ran, sat, ran south past the central plaza and through the business district, finally ending at Valhalia's imperial palace atop King's Hill. 
The street leading to his home branched off the boulevard not far from the plaza and ascended a low hill where, for a short space, one could enjoy sweeping views of the city, including the palace and the two bridges spanning the Ashgard River in graceful arcs on either end of the business district. On the corner just off the boulevard, a young woman played her lute. Its haunting strains captivated Jonah. He paused a moment to listen, dropped two coins into the basket at her side, and continued on. He took little notice at first of the pudgy little man in the loose brown robe leaning on the cobblestone fence a few steps up. But as he approached, something made Jonah slow his pace pace, and follow the stranger's gaze to the hilltop. The palace's alabaster towers gleamed rust-red in the last rays of the dying sun. How fitting, the stranger mur- murmured. Already the castle bleeds. Jonah stopped. I beg your pardon, sir? The stranger turned his head and squinted up at Jonah, then offered a tight, unpleasant smile. Nothing, governor. He ambled away, leaving Jonah feeling suddenly cold. They heard the screams shortly after eleven. Jonah, followed by his wife, Tanya, rushed downstairs. Their daughter stood in front of a drawing room window, one hand poised to pull, to pull aside the heavy drape. Merowyn, get away from there, Jonah ordered. Merowyn's head whipped around. What's happening, Papa? I don't know. Jo- Jonah pulled his wife and daughter to him and held them close. Perhaps the witch king has decided to march. "'Tis your wicked nephew,' Tanya whispered brokenly. "'Would God he had died with?' "'Do not speak wickedness, Tanya,' her husband interrupted. "'God can yet deliver us if he chooses. "'If not, we shall glorify him with our deaths.' Running footsteps drummed the ground. Glass shattered. A woman's shrill shrill screams filled the night. Jonah released his wife and daughter. "'Take the horses and flee to Primava. "'I'll come when I can.' Heavy boots stormed up the front steps. Rough fists pounded the oak door. Guttural voices demanded entrance. "'Will not leave you, Papa?' Merowyn cried. Jonah laid his hands on his daughter's shoulders and looked earnestly into her eyes. "'I'm depending on you to take care of your mother, Princess,' he said quietly. "'Don't worry, I'll find you there. Now go.' Jonah quickly kissed her cheek. "'Papa, go!' He gave her a push and Merowyn ran, not outside but to the butcher block on the little table in the kitchen. Seizing the biggest knife, she stole back to the main hall. Tanya, pale and trembling, had crouched outside the foyer door. Merowyn crept over and knelt beside her. Jonah Havaseth calmly opened the front door and waited, saying nothing as, rega- as he regarded the ruffians with quiet reproof. A burly soldier pulled, put the point of his sword to Jonah's throat. Jonah neither blinked nor flinched. Former prelate Jonah Havaseth, you are hereby ordered to relinquish your house to the deputy of his most royal eminence, the honorable and majestic Lucius Moderius. Gather whatever you need and come with us. Jonah's gaze traveled slowly down the speaker's frame and up again. Is this how the honorable and majestic Lucius Mordarius rewards the uncle who, when he was orphaned, raised him as his own son? Silence, your insubordinate tongue knave, lest I cut it out of your mouth. The soldier pushed his sword tighter to Jonah's throat. A trickle of blood flowed from where the point pierced the skin. Come, there's no need for such abuse. Lucius Modarius picked his way through the mob. The soldier reluctantly lowered his blade and withdrew a wall. Modarius stood before his uncle. The sight of him repulsed Merowyn. Modarius possessed neither honor nor majesty and looked ridiculous. His towering, too thin frame stood ramrod straight. His dark eyes glittered maniacally. The high, stiff collar of his heavy black cape, along with his black hair, angular features, and pointed beard, gave him the appearance of a gigantic bat. He should have been hanging upside down in some cave. I ask of you, Jonas said evenly, is this your gratitude to those who cared for you when death took your parents and left you desolate? Mordarius smiled. My dear uncle, 
In my gratitude, I ensure you won't suffer. Cold steel sang through the air. Merowyn heard her mother scream, but could utter nothing through her own tight throat. She heard a sickening crack as bones struck stone, and then Jonah Havelseth's severed head rocked gently in a widening crimson pool beside his crumpled, twitching body. Another shrink from Tanya stopped abruptly as she fell senseless to the floor. Soldiers spilled into the house. Mordarius strolled among them, his bloody blade raised as he arrogantly surveyed the paneled walls and marbled staircase. Murderer! Merowyn leaped to her feet and raised the knife. Traitor! The light from the candelabra reflected off the blade as she hurled the weapon at Mordarius's heart. He sidestepped. His sword clattered to the floor as the knife arced low and impaled his hand below the base of his thumb. Howling, he clutched his injured limb and leveled a searing gaze at Merowyn. Two soldiers seized her. One slapped her repeatedly with the back of his hand. The force of his blows whipped her head from side to side, but she clenched her teeth and kept silent. The blow stopped, and Merowyn stared into her cousin's rage-contorted face. His breath, reeking of garlic and tobacco, almost made her vomit. Grimacing, Mordarius pulled the knife from his hand and held it to her face. You treacherous little witch. Let me finish her. The soldier who had struck her grabbed Merowyn's hair and yanked her head back. No. Mordarius's voice dropped to a whisper. Eyes half-closed, he gazed down his long nose and slowly, almost sensuously, stroked her cheek with the bloody blade. I have something more fitting in mind. His face hardened. Bring her. With Merowyn struggling between them, the soldiers followed Mordarius outside. Around them, panicked citizens ran amok, pushing, shoving, and trampling each other. Rebel forces poured through the cobblestone streets, smashing windows, looting homes, and setting them ablaze, and dragging the dazed and screaming occupants outside. A handful of citizens fought back. Merowyn watched in horror as soldiers knocked them to the ground and beat them senseless before thrusting them through with sword or spear. Some they decapitated and kicked their severed heads back and forth as they spilled out of one street and down another. When they reached the square, Mordarius stopped. Now, my pampered little cousin, let's see how pretty you look when I'm through with you. He slapped her and then signaled to the soldiers who held her. Merowyn, her face swollen, bruised and bloody, was stoned to her knees and held there while Mordarius sheared her long golden locks. The ultimate disgrace to an Atwell maiden, for it branded her a whore. She fixed smoldering eyes on his leering face, not letting herself see the luxuriant tresses scattered about the cold stones or feel the chilly night air or on her nearly bald scalp. Mordarius's grin widened. Pointing down at Merowyn, he glanced around the circle of soldiers and shouted, Who wants her? Raucous guffaws greeted his query. One of the soldiers spat. Mordarius clicked his tongue and pitifully shook his head. Poor sweet thing, he crooned. Who shall keep you warm tonight? No one wants you. Well then, straight to the stables you go. Citizen Mayor, a pudgy little man in a loose brown robe, waddled out of the crowd. Here, ride this little mare if you wish and then put her to work. Mordarius jerked his head toward Merowyn. The two soldiers yanked her to her feet and pitched her into Mayor's arms. Mayor shoved her away, bloody and bald as a bloomin' baby. He snorted and brushed something off one sleeve. Does nothing for me. Do what you want with it then. It's no concern of mine. Mordarius raised his sword. Come, men, there's more to be done tonight. Turning on his heel, he strutted off into the darkness. A fleeting shadow sailed over the dark forests of Baron Phil. Powerful wings beat the air as the great horned owl soared high above the battlements of Castle Riadoc. For a moment she hovered, wings stretched out upon the winds. Then, swift as an arrow, she swooped down and alit upon Riadoc's waiting arm. Yellow eyes met steel blue. 
as Ryodok bent his elbow and brought the owl before him. For several minutes, Ryodok stared impassively into the owl's face. Yes, good, he murmured, dropping his arm. The owl fluttered away and perched atop the wall. Ryodok pressed his palms together and raised them to his lips. So Madarius has taken Valhalia and murdered his beloved uncle. Turning, he paced across the rooftop. There will be no end to his striving. His greed knows no bounds. He must remember his place, however, for I rule supreme. I shall do nothing further yet, and neither shall he. I'll watch the people tremble, laugh at their futile attempts to determine my next move. Riadoc turned and held out his arm. The owl glided to him, and he smiled as he stroked its soft feathers. Beautiful bird, tell your master. Well done. Riadoc is pleased. Go now, my pet. He lifted his arm, and the owl fluttered away. Modarius accomplished much with an army of men and now fancies himself a god, but his grandiose visions will shrivel when my legions march. Riadoc's ringing laughter filled the night. I have a few quotes for you. I'll start with the words of Jesus. Listen carefully to what I am saying and be wary of the shrewd advice that tells you how to get ahead in the world on your own. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. Stinginess impoverishes. That's from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 24 and 25 in the message. Paul Hatfield, in his book, The Generosity Revolution, which is a good book, by the way. What if before we made financial decisions, large or small, instead of asking if we could afford it, we asked, how will this impact our ability to be generous now and in the future? And one last one from Mother Teresa. If you can't feed 100 people, then just feed one. As we close this podcast, I just wanted to remind you that all three of our authors have more than one book available online. So be sure to look up Christine McCord, Sandra Kopp, and Danny Clark. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.